Uh, hello, my name is uh, Patrick Steren, and uh, along with my wife Stacy and uh, mother-in-law Sharon, as well as our two small boys, Lucas and Jackson, who are upstairs right now, hopefully not causing too much trouble, uh, <laughs> we have been attending TCC happily for the last uh, seven months, and hopefully one day they'll be part of the, the youth team. That's like amazing what they're doing. Uh, so today's scripture reading is Exodus 34, 1 to 9. The Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up to Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. Lord, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Uh, so if you don't know me or if you haven't met me before, you're probably, probably wondering where my accent comes from. And the answer is it comes from New Zealand. It's always fun to see North Americans try to guess uh, where I'm from. Uh, I've had people ask if I'm British, which I... There we go, that's better. Which I take as a compliment. Or if I'm South African, which I don't take <laughs> as a South... Sorry, Daniel, Marina. I might have to hold this thing here. Uh, by far the most common uh, guess that I get is whether I'm... Whew. Just give me a sec here. By far the most common guess that I get is if I'm from Australia. <clears throat> no, actually, I don't really mean that. Uh, some of my worst friends are Australian. <laughs> Sorry. little joke. Just a little antipodean humour there for you. Actually, there's a great deal of camaraderie between our two countries, and we fought together uh, way back in w World War I uh, at Gallipoli. And we even share a national holiday called Anzac Day, kind of like your Veterans Day, uh, but we do like to razz each other, that's true. Uh, one thing I've noticed is we always get a pretty good response from people when we say that we're from New Zealand. Um, not quite sure why. I think for some reason we have a good reputation. Uh, maybe something to do with Lord of the Rings, not quite sure. And if you've travelled overseas as Canadians, you've also probably noticed that you have a pretty good international reputation. Um, and very well deserved it is too. <laughs> Immigration department, if you're watching. 
but not, not all reputations are accurate, are they? I'm sure we can all think of people that had good reputations that proved to be uh, unfounded. And then maybe you've known people with bad, bad reputations, and, and that was unjustified. So I want to start off this morning by asking the question, what do you think God's reputation is right now? Out there, generally speaking. Good? Bad? A mixture? Uh, here in the West, I think it's fair to say that God has uh, become out of favour, by and large. Uh, if I was to describe the current sentiment of God, uh, towards God, I would say that people tend to think of him either as a domineering tyrant or maybe something like a cosmic Santa Claus. Uh, but not, neither of those two views uh, is in any way an accurate reputation. And uh, where we do start to see an accurate representation is in our reading from this morning. Thanks, Pat. That was awesome. Exodus 34. So we find in this passage, it's it really going into it, we can see that it's God's recognition that mankind is quite incapable of discovering his character unless he reveals it to us. Yes, we can survey all of creation, and from that we can probably guess that he, we, he must be a very powerful God, that he's timeless, uh, unchanging, and even that he's personal because he made humanity and he put us right at the center of his creation. But how do we know what he's like? How he feels? How, how can we know his heart if he doesn't reveal it to us? So it's for this reason that I've selected today's uh, passage, taking us all the way back to the uh, second book of the Bible. Uh, it's really to a special scene. That's where God reveals himself to Moses, and he provides a pretty detailed description of his own character. Excuse me. This is the only place in Scripture that God ever does this one-on-one in real time. And he doesn't just give a list of his attributes, you know, that he's all-powerful and all-knowing and in all places. He doesn't get into any of that. Instead, this is a passage about his heart. Now, one of the first uh, observations I want to make is that this passage is right at the very front of the Bible, in the Old Testament. And some people are uncomfortable with the God of the Old Testament because if you keep reading, you come across some pretty confronting scenes that read correctly do speak to us about God's sovereignty and about his justice. But most people don't really take the time to read it correctly. People prefer instead to go all the way to the New Testament and talk and look to a gentler, a supposedly gentler Jesus of the New Testament. Uh, but my goal this morning is to make a case for an unchanging God from the very first pages of the Bible to the very end of the Bible. That God, the God of Exodus, is the same as the God of Calvary. And if we can see that, then we can see that there will be some pretty serious ramifications to that concept. So let's set the scene. In the previous chapters of Exodus, God has mightily delivered his people, really one big family called Israel. He's delivered them from uh, bitter slavery in the land of Egypt. And uh, Moses was his representative to Pharaoh and to his own people. This is the people that he's chosen for his very own. He intends to set them up in the promised land 
And this, this is going to be the, the start of his rescue to the, enti- to the entire world. They're the start of a plan to rescue the human race from a different kind of slavery, from slavery to sin. Now, having seen for themselves God's power to deliver them, this chosen people now needs to understand how to relate to him and also how to relate to each other. If they're going to be this light to the world, then they need something called the Ten Commandments. And so God, with his own finger, inscribes Ten Commandments on two stone tablets. You know the ones? You shall have no other gods before me. Do not make any idols. Do not steal, kill, and so on. But the people were not willing to wait for Moses to come down from the mountain with the tablets, and they decided to take matters into their own hands, and they fashioned a god for themselves, an idol, a golden calf. When Moses comes down and sees this for himself, he throws down those tablets in uh, fury, really, a furious rebuke of their sin. I mean, if they can't even get through the first two commandments, then what hope do they have to get through the next eight? Moses realizes it's really hopeless without God. So in desperation, he prays to God to stay with the nation of Israel, and not not just to stay with them, but to lead them. And not just to lead them, but to reveal himself to them, so that they can come to know him in all his glory. And he asks for it to start with himself, with Moses. But God knows Moses can't survive such an encounter. In the same way that that we can't look at the sun directly without some pretty strong eye protection, no man can look at God unfiltered and live. Instead, God agrees to pass before Moses, but with his hand covering Moses' face until he's gone past. And then we pick up the story in verse 5. Right at the bottom there. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. I want us to notice one thing right here at the start, on this momentous morning, that God is a God willing to descend. God is not the remote God of deism, like a cosmic inventor who winds up the universe and stands back to watch it spin. God is not the impersonal God of Islam, only favoring those who strictly adhere to his edicts, and even then without a guarantee. No, God is willing to descend to earth, to be with his people, even when they don't deserve it. And recall that uh, Moses did not deserve it. Remember, 40 years earlier, he'd struck and killed an Egyptian and then fled to hide in the desert and look after the sheep. When God called him at the the burning bush, Moses argued with God, tried to get out of his calling. He had no confidence at all that God would deliver them. Yet God was willing to descend and reveal himself to Moses in this moment. Uh, The second thing we notice is that God is not to be trifled with. Did you notice that from the reading? This crack of dawn meeting takes place on top of a mountain. Only Moses can attend. Uh, No one else is allowed to be there or even to observe. Uh, Even the livestock can't even be on the opposite slopes. And it's all for their own protection. Because seeing God unfiltered would be the end of them. 
And not just that, Moses is being treated to an awesome privilege, and he needed to understand the import of this event. And so God passed before him and proclaimed his own name. In fact, he states it twice to indicate the gravity of this revelation. The Lord, the Lord, the great I am, the one who's self-existent and uncreated, the one who's sovereign over all, the one transcendent and glorious. This is the one speaking, and you'd better listen up. What follows the proclamation of his name is a declaration of his character. So how does God describe himself? Well, again, he doesn't list his attributes at all. Somewhat surprisingly, he doesn't even mention his holiness, although I suspect by now Moses has picked up on that. Instead, God speaks of his heart. He passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Just one ring. Impressive. That's fast reaction time. So the first adjective that God selects to describe himself is merciful. Some translations, and the one that we read this morning, replace the word merciful with compassionate. I actually prefer that one. Compassion comes from the Latin, passio from suffering, and com meaning with. So it's sympathy and empathy and, uh, and, and understanding what someone's going through. Feeling for them, and not just for them, but feeling with them. In the original Hebrew, the word here for compassion is closely associated with the word for womb. The idea here is that God feels deeply for his people in the same way that a mother feels for her baby. Fierce love, great tenderness. It's the kind of love we celebrate at Mother's Day, right? Because if you've received that kind of love, you know you've been blessed. And this is the way God feels towards his people. We're only at the first adjective in the list here. The very first thing God wants us to know is that he is compassionate. That he has a heart of tender passion towards his people, like a mother does with her baby. Have you come to know him as this God of compassion? I know a lot of us have. Or is the idea of a compassionate God a foreign one to you? Are you maybe laboring under a misconception about the true nature of God? Well, if so, he wants you to know that he has compassion for you, that he feels for you and even feels with you. But he doesn't stop there. He is a God both compassionate and gracious. So in the Bible, we learn that, God, uh, that grace is God's unmerited favor towards mankind. Favor or goodwill that man does nothing to deserve and much to undeserve. If mercy is about the guilty person not receiving the due penalty of their sin, then grace is about that guilty person receiving blessings that would never have been due to them. And this is what God loves to do. He loves to bless his people 
in ways they could never merit nor deserve because that is his heart towards us. And here in the book of Exodus, God does forgive the people for their idolatry. And then, even more than that, he blesses them with his presence all the way on their journey to the, pres- to the uh, promised land. Not something they deserved, but God granted it nonetheless because he is gracious. Gracious is the second adjective uh, he selected to reveal his character to Moses. Gracious. Have you experienced this in your relationship with God? Grace? Where he's blessed you even when you deserve the complete opposite? Has he been gracious to you? I know that many of us have had that experience. But God doesn't stop there. He goes on. And the next phrase seems to expand on those first two adjectives. It's almost like he's drawn an outline of his heart and now he's taking a paintbrush and he's starting to colour it in. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Boy, I am sure I am sure glad that God is slow to anger, aren't you? Long suffering in the old tongue. Uh, so unlike many of us, God does not have a quick temper. Does that surprise you? It takes a lot more than we think to God uh, to make God angry. How do you picture God's attitude towards you today? Do you think he's angry with you right now? Well, according to God's own words right here, maybe he's not so angry with you as you might think. Or even if he is angry with you, by his own proclamation, he is slow to leverage that anger against you. It's how his compassion works itself out in practice. He is slow to rouse his anger against us. But notice the additional color that he brings in here. He is a God abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Abounding. I love that word. Abounding in steadfast love. Abundant, plentiful love. God is not stingy with his love. His love is overflowing. And not just that, but it's steadfast. It doesn't waver. It's never weak. It's relentless love. Let me ask again, is that your sense of God's love towards you? That it's abounding and overflowing, unwavering? Because God says that this is his heart towards his people. But notice also that he abounds in something else, faithfulness. What does that mean? It means he is true and he is trustworthy. Abundantly so. It means his promises will always be kept. It means he will honor our trust in him. He will never fail us. Are you starting to get a sense of God's heart towards us? How big his heart is? And that it's directed towards us. It's how he feels about us. But he's still not finished. In case you're still doubting the size of his heart, he doubles down by starting to quantify it. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity 
and transgression and sin. That abounding steadfast love and faithfulness, that compassion and grace, it extends to thousands. Thousands of what? People? Sure. But there's every reason to believe that he's really referring to thousands of generations. Some of your translations even include that exact word because it's, it's uh, strongly implied from the last part of the verse. That we'll get to that shortly. But can you see the progression of God's words in these verses? Starting with compassion and grace, he's, he's describing the way he feels about us. And then everything that follows is explaining what those two characteristics look like. Now they're describing the size of his heart, how much he feels about us how steadfast that love is and how it leads to his forgiving us. So the two-dimensional sketch has been colored in. Now we're getting depth. Now we're getting a 3D technicolor view of God's heart. Of how those feelings work themselves out in practice. And it's in the act of forgiving those he loves. Not just forgiving certain types of sin, but all of them. Serious, trivial, deliberate, unintended, all of them give way before this abounding, steadfast love and faithfulness. Is it merited? No. Is it earned? Certainly not. But is it available nonetheless? Absolutely. We've heard the very words ourselves from God's mouth here. So again, I want to ask you, is this your experience of God? Because while it's available to all, it has to be grasped by faith. That thought, hold that thought. We haven't finished our reading. Because God has been very direct about his massive heart, and now he warns us not to take his love for granted. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation? Whoa, that's uh, quite the minor all of a sudden. Somewhat less uplifting, am I right? Uh, So the first sentence, so lovely, layer upon layer, uh, painted to display God's uh, grace and compassion for us, how much he feels about us only to be faced with a rather less positive view of God? Well, actually, I'd like to challenge that idea uh, this morning. Does this verse really constitute something negative about God? And recall, this is God's description of himself in a once-in-humanity experience. He obviously sees this as something we need to understand about him for our own good. So what is he saying? Well, simply that God is a just God. And I think we can all agree that justice is a good thing. We don't like the idea of of criminals uh, or, or wrongdoers getting away with it, especially if we've been on the receiving end of the crime or the wrongdoing. Uh, in those cases, it's very natural, natural for us to want to see justice done. So we don't have a problem with the concept of justice itself. Intellectually, we we can all agree that we want God to be just until it comes to ourselves. 
And there are two questions that arise from this verse as it pertains to ourselves. First off, what's all this about visiting the uh, sins of the fathers on the children uh, to the third and fourth generation? Well, one thing it does not mean is that God holds children or grandchildren accountable for the sins of their parents. God is very clear about this uh, in other parts of the Bible. But having said that, I think we all understand that the consequences of our sins will affect those around us, whether it's directly, whether it's indirectly. A parent's alcoholism state will devastate their children, as will uh, marital infidelity or criminal activity. Let's not deceive ourselves that we can act like, our, like we, that we can act as we like and the kids will be fine. They won't be fine. And God permits those consequences because we need to understand that we have agency in the decisions we take. We are responsible for our sin. So this verse is much about consequences. But I believe there's another very important application of this verse. Let's recall that this passage is God's revelation about his heart towards us, first and foremost. So what is God revealing about himself and about his heart in this declaration of his justice? Again, let's look at the way he quantifies his qualities. I mentioned a few moments ago that God's steadfast love and faithfulness are displayed to thousands And the likely implication is that he means thousands of generations. But here in verse 7, we see that God's justice is being displayed to a mere three or four generations. Are you seeing the contrast here? Thousands against a handful. I believe God is deliberately contrasting the working out of his love against the working out of his justice. He's making a direct comparison of his heart for us over and against the application of his justice against us. Now, that's not to say that God is at war with himself or that he's conflicted uh, or that his justice is somehow overridden by uh, his love so that our sin is inconsequential. No, we've already seen that sin has consequences. But he wants us to understand both the quality and the quantity of his tender feelings towards us. And he uses numbers to make his point. He describes his love in terms of thousands of generations and his justice in terms of just a handful. How do you feel? Do you feel the power of that contrast? Now, I said earlier that there were two questions that arise from this verse. The first was the reference to children and children's children. Uh, The second is just the apparent contradiction, right? Having just pointed out that he forgives iniquity, transgressions, and why does God suddenly turn right around and say he does not clear the guilty? Both cases involve guilty people, right? So which is it? Will God forgive us or won't he? Well, there is, in fact, no contradiction here. God is both things at the same time. He is compassionate and he is just. He has a heart to forgive, but make no mistake, he will see justice done. What we're supposed to discern from these verses 
is that the choice lies with us. God's forgiveness is offered to us all, but we must appropriate it by faith. We get to choose whether we will take a God of compassion and grace or a God of justice. Forgiveness is available to us, but we need to approach God for it. In the business world, it's common to see something called a letter of credit. Uh, It's basically a legal promise issued by a bank to pay out company B if company A doesn't meet their obligations. So at my company, we use them for new businesses. Um, Maybe they don't have a track record yet of paying their rent on time. Uh, So we get a letter of credit issued to us from their bank. They pay a small fee for this. And the bank is promising or guaranteeing us a pretty sizable one-off payment with no questions asked. If that business fails to pay their rent, I can take that letter to the bank and that bank is legally obliged to give me that chunk of cash. But if that business goes under and fails to pay their rent, the letter is of no use to me unless and until I take it to the bank to collect on it. Here in this passage, God is promising to forgive the guilty, but it's not automatic. We can't just assume it. We need to ask for it. We need to cash in that promise by faith. So how do we do it? Well, if you keep reading the story of Moses, you'll come across a perfect example of how exactly to appropriate God's promises and also how not to. In the book of Numbers, we see that God has brought his people to the edge of the promised land, and it's a veritable land flowing with milk and honey. But it's inhabited by giants, and the people fail to appropriate the promised land by faith. They fear the giants they can see rather than the God that they can't see, even though he's delivered them with a mighty hand out of Egypt. In fact, they directly impugn his goodness by accusing him of a major setup as if he's brought them all this way just to let them die. That is how not to appropriate God's promises. Fortunately, there is one man who knows how to do this, Moses. A man who has been prepared for a moment such as this because he's learned about God's character firsthand. So listen to his prayer in Numbers 14. And now please let the power of the Lord be great, as you have promised, saying... The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. And on it goes. Can you see what he's doing here? Moses is directly quoting God's words back to him. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your, here it is again, steadfast love. Just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Moses is taking God at face value. You have promised to be a forgiven God. Please show that forgiveness now. He's asking God to come through on his promise. He's taking the letter of credit to the bank. He's cashing it in, but he's doing it with humility because he knows it's undeserved. But he's also doing it with faith because he's seen God come through on this promise before, from Egypt until now. He chooses 
to believe that God will do so, do so again. And God did. Have you ever humbled yourself before God, taking him at his word and asking in faith for that forgiveness to be applied to you? And if not, will today be the day? Will you choose a God who is full of compassion? Or will you ignore him and thereby choose a God of justice? Because if you fail to make a choice, you really are making a choice. Really, it's about humility and pride. Here in Numbers 14, Moses showed humility and chose to access the God of compassion. Will you do the same? Now, I said at the outset that my goal today was to show you that uh, the God of the Old Testament is exactly the same as the God of the New Testament. But I haven't, I've mentioned Jesus one time. Uh, That was deliberate. I just wanted you to see from the Old Testament that God's heart is huge and always has been huge for us. So it's quite wrong to think of God in the Old Testament as a stern authoritarian figure and then suddenly Jesus turns up in the New Testament and he's kinder and softer. No, 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 no. God's character has not changed in the slightest. He's just come closer. Here's how John puts it. Uh, No one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. He's talking about God the Son. Jesus came to make God known to man. And not just to one man, or not just to one uh, people, but to all of mankind. Jesus literally put face on God. If that's true, then all of the adjectives that God used of himself way back in Exodus 34 should equally apply to Jesus Christ. Am I right? If God's unchanging and Jesus is God in the flesh, then God's, uh, Jesus' heart should be the same as God the Father's heart. Challenge accepted. Let's run through those characteristics one more time and see, what we can, see if we can say the same thing about Jesus. Uh, first, is Jesus a God willing to descend? Well, That one's a no-brainer. He's the word become flesh and he dwelt amongst us. It's what Christmas is all about. Okay, is he full of compassion? Does he look upon us with the same fierce passion and tenderness as a mother with her baby? Again, this one's pretty easy. Jesus took the babies into his arms and he blessed them, saying, let the little children come to me. Uh, He was willing to heal everyone that came to him. The Bible also tells us he was acquainted with our griefs. He knew as a human what it was like to live on this earth. Join him at the tomb of Lazarus, where he was greatly troubled and wept. Hear his invitation, come to me, all you who are uh, weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Yes, Jesus is compassionate. What about Is Jesus gracious like God the Father was gracious back in Exodus? Does he show unmerited favor? Again, the answer is an unequivocal yes. Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sins. And when we accept that offer, we receive his life. He took the punishment that we so richly deserved, and we received forgiveness that we could never have earned. He became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. Yes, Jesus is gracious. Was he slow to anger? Let's see. 
spent three years with 12 men who were, let's face it, pretty dim. That was patient, very patient. Um, he dined with tax, tax collectors, uh, the most despised sinners. Uh, he refused to cast the first stone. Remember that? Even when she was guilty. Recall that Jesus came into the world not to condemn the world, but in order that the, that the world might be saved through him. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. And even suffering the indignities of the crucifixion, he refused to call down the legion of angels that was available to him. I think that qualifies as slow to anger. Did Jesus abound in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love to thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin? Jesus' love caused him to leave heaven to pursue us. It took him all the way to the cross. He was cut off from the Father and crucified to redeem us. He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He was raised to life on the third day and by his Holy Spirit gives that life to everyone that would come to him in the 20 centuries following and still does today. And the gospel is just as steadfast and relentless today as it was in the first century. Yes, Jesus abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. But lastly, is Jesus a God who will see justice done? Will he by no means clear the guilty? Jesus is coming back, and when he comes, it will judge the living, it will be to judge the living and the dead. He will separate the sheep from the goats and will reward everyone for their deeds, whether good or bad. He's not a God to be trifled with. So in conclusion, we can see uh, we can very much agree that Jesus is the exact representation of his being, as uh, Hebrews would put it. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the same God who was revealed in Technicolor 3D back in Exodus actually became flesh and bone and dwelt amongst us. God the Father issued the promises, and, the God, and God the Son showed up to fulfill them. Which brings us all to the very same choice that the Israelites faced. Will we come to Jesus to humbly ask him to forgive us? Or will we reject him and remain destined to see him only as our judge on the final day? And if we have already chosen to respond favorably to this uh, revelation of God's heart in the person of Jesus Christ, what next? What's, What's the appropriate response to such awesome knowledge? Moses got it right all the way back in Exodus 34. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Will that be your response today? Will you respond to his heart for you? And will you love him because he first loved you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for descending to reveal yourself to Moses and then in the person of Jesus Christ to reveal yourself to us. Thank you for describing how you feel about us and then for how you demonstrated your love for us in this, that you, Christ, died for the ungodly. We acknowledge our indebtedness to you and we resolve to honour you with our lives. 
Here today we commit ourselves to you afresh because you are for us and not against us, because you are a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Thank you that we get to have you in our lives. Amen.